All right, Lisa, we are in the last month of the year. And what I do know is that a lot of people run out on Black Friday to do a lot of shopping um, and whatever they might be doing to catch whatever sales, real or not, out there. Um, but there are lots of folks, too, that are looking towards giving to charitable organizations, whether it's very large scale philanthropic efforts or, or small scale, it doesn't matter. Uh, they want to give to organizations that they feel could benefit during this time period. And I always wonder how thoughtful are people as they are thinking about their giving during this time of year? I mean, I know uh, for some people, generosity does wash over them. Maybe they've had some other uh, type of experience for themselves during the holidays that they want to benefit people that they may have walked in their shoes in the past or lived um, in that type of environment, et cetera. But I do think it's something that we should think about. We're always encouraging people and kind of poking and prodding them to think about their thinking. And this is a good time to do that. It's almost December. It is December. And for those of us that have a few extra coins, we're thinking about where should we spend them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. What, what do you say there? I say let's absolutely do it because a lot of endurance sports organizations are nonprofits and are probably themselves thinking perhaps about their fundraising strategy now and in the future. And then yes. um, for folks, like you said, who like to um, make donations at the end of the year, there's a lot mm. to think about for sure. All right. So let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items at orca.com, use the code IRONWOMEN15. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. I love the meal recommendations that come with the analysis. It prompted me to add salmon into my meal rotations, and I am loving it. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty, and then use the code feisty at checkout. All right, so Lisa, I've, I've mentioned this before, and I'm just going to reiterate it again. 
my my life's dream before I had children was to be like someone's rich auntie. Like I'm just the one that shows up to the holidays. You know, I I have my little plate of food. I give the kids a little bit of money. You know, the kids come and say, hey, my tuition is, is a little short. I write the check and then I go back to my lush, lavish house and live my lush, lavish life, right? That, that would have been my ideal life, but then life took a different turn. I have wonderful children and I'm living a different life. Um, but that would have been the dream, just to write checks and give money away because that's what I like to do and it makes me happy. And I'm always thinking about people who need things. So that's just kind of who I am. But, yeah, that's you great. know, I, I think, you know, now that I did not make my goal of being somebody's rich auntie, um, you know, I'm still thinking about money and how it's being spent and who it's being spent on. And Lisa, do you have some some charities maybe even that you give to during this Mm -hmm. time of year that or any time of year, frankly, that are important to you? Yeah, actually, a friend of mine years ago in college um, at that point donated every year to a handful of charities. I think she gave like, I don't know, one or two pounds, British pounds a month. And um, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's, that's really nice. Cause I hadn't thought about, I mean, it's not that I hadn't donated to charity, but I hadn't thought about giving in an ongoing basis. And so now I actually do give to a handful of charitable organizations, uh, monthly, uh, for an, on an ongoing basis. And then at the end of the year, I try to think about either increasing that donation for the upcoming year or providing like a one-time, uh, sum. So I have, Charities that are largely, you know, anti-violence against women or anti-sexual violence specifically, and then also pro-animals <laughs> um, tend to be where I um, share my money. And obviously with animals around the holidays, there's a massive spike in need because so many animals are provided as holiday gifts and then are left unwanted in the weeks and months after. And so you Mm -hmm. find that there's a lot of uh, financial need for shelters to keep these little puppies or kittens or rabbits or horses um, healthy and happy until they can find their new family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, for me, it's it's been interesting over the years that my um, charitable efforts have kind of expanded a bit. Like I uh, always tried to give to my home church, of course, um, where I was raised and had a lot of uh, positive experiences during my own childhood, for example, or uh, giving back to my beloved James Madison University and specific programs that uh, support Black students and and their needs and their efforts. Uh, contemporary gospel singers, which was kind of like my home church while I was on campus, for example. And now that has kind of spread out a little bit, um, what I try to do as part of my business is um, throughout the year, I kind of keep a running tally of, oh, this is an organization that I've heard about that I share values with. Let me uh, keep this on the philanthropy list. So once I get down to the end of the year, I crunch the numbers, make sure that everybody's comfortable, make sure, you know, my staff is is paid and, you know, whatever is owed to them for whatever services they provided. And then at the end, whatever's left there, back, right, write the check, what have you. But, you know, I think, you know, we need to encourage folks to think more critically about, you know, number one, if you're giving, um, if you're able to, and if so, what exactly does that look like? And how does that align with your values? Because I would imagine if you're listening to this 
this podcast, you have a number of different values, but much of it is probably around equity, inclusion, social justice, and endurance sport. And a lot of endurance sport is based on a, a nonprofit business format, if you will. And so I think there's a lot for us to think about here to be more intentional year after year, or like your friend throughout the year um, in ways that folks can give and have a, a great impact. Yeah. And I wonder, um, you know, as you said, they're endurance sport based on a nonprofit business model, which, you know, I know, but it's not something I've actually considered historically is donating to um, an endurance sport organization, right? That's providing support in some way or another to a community that needs it as a means to get active or to provide opportunities to kids that might not otherwise have them. So that's also something, I think, an expansion of what we might even consider a charitable organization, um, because there are, are massive national charitable organizations, right, that address sport, like Athlete Ally, for example, is a national organization that works to advocate for LGBTIQA athletes um, and create safer spaces for sport for members of the LGBTIQA community. But what about on the local level? You know, what about your local tri-club that has a youth program, for example? So that's even something to consider. And it speaks to your point about values, right? So what are your values and how are you spending that end of your money? How are you, you know, giving donations and in what ways do they align? And then the other side of that is as an organization that might be seeking fundraising, um, how are you communicating your values? How are you putting yourself out there as an organization that would welcome um, charitable giving and, you know, developing a plan and articulating, here's what we do with that money. Here's how we change people's lives, right? I think that's something that maybe endurance sports organizations perhaps don't do very well is actually putting out that message around this time of year. I would absolutely agree with that because, you know, when I think about endurance sport, whether it's clubs or, or certain organizations, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing attractive to me to give to those organizations because it it would be one thing for an organization to brand themselves and their philanthropic efforts in such a way that we know exactly what we're giving to and those values align. So if it's just, you know, Lisa's Tri Club, and I'm not really clear on the branding, right? Well, I might be giving money to people that are going to Kona. And I'm like, eh, not so much. I ain't trying to give to you. But if you branded Lisa's Tri Club as every year we do a, I don't know, a free four-week summer camp to teach kids to swim or get swim confidence or what have you, because this money is going directly to decreasing the drowning rates in this city or this county. Okay, now you're making a rationale for me to want to give versus Lisa's Tri Club where everybody going to Kona. No, I'm not interested in giving everybody going to Kona. So, you know, I, I do think your point is really valid around if your leadership in a Tri Club or an endurance sport organization, how are you being honest and very transparent about your potential positive impact with the money that's provided. I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure that that's clear in some organizations. Yeah, it, it isn't, I don't think. I mean, I'm you're making me think of Fund Her Try, right? Which is an organization that um 
collects donations to then um, provide to women to go out and do their first triathlon as an effort to increase women's representations in triathlon. Their message and their values, I think, is very clear. That's their whole purpose. However, another a club or another organization, you know, larger organization that doesn't necessarily have a singular mission in that way, that might be like your, your example, right, has a program that is supportive of a particular group of people or trying to change a particular thing in sport, that that message sometimes gets lost in kind of the broader um, mission of what the organization is about. So getting some clarity around that, I think, would be really important. Um the other thing I think that you're making me think of, Shauna, is as someone who gives money, contemplates, you know, um, providing charitable funding, um, how do I know what a, what an organization is doing is effective, right? And then oh, yes. how, do, how do I evaluate efficacy mm-hmm. um, when I'm making mm-hmm. those choices? What, whether it's an endurance sport charitable organization or not, right? Just generally, mm-hmm. how am I making those assessments? Where do I look? Where do I go to get that information? Um, and what assumptions might I be bringing to that thought process? Right, right. Yeah, because, you know, the assumption may be if I can't see it, it's not happening. Um, or, oh my goodness, you know, the, there's way too much overhead. And so I want to give towards you know, the clothes on people's backs or the items that they're receiving rather than the overhead, which, of course, in order to get very skilled people that know what they're doing, even a relatively humble uh, salary is still yet a salary. And so many donors don't want to give to that stuff. Like, you know, it's not sexy to say we need the lights on in our, you know, three-person office and that costs money each year. Like, that's not sexy. But What's sexy is, oh, well, we're giving new running shoes to the 10 girls that were in, you know, this particular youth tri club, and we don't know how we're going to keep the lights on in the office that distribute the shoes. The shoes are sexier than the lights. And I think that's what right, we kind of right. forget. I mean, it's something that, you know, my my pastor used to say in church all the time, it's much sexier for us to give out food and give out food boxes and so forth than it is to keep the lights on in the sanctuary. But you would be pissed if you showed off to the sanctuary with no lights. So, you know, all of it is part and parcel with the final outcome. And I think, you know, to, what our electric company here uh, in the Maryland area is Baltimore Gas and Electric, BGE for short. BGE does not care that you're doing good work out in the community. They still want their money for their light bill. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do we make sure, too, that we as nonprofit organizations, as well as donors, remember that the non-sexy stuff is still a requirement to run the programs and do the Mm -hmm. events and have, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that is the non-sexy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I think when you're making a decision about efficacy, right, does organization A have an impact in the community, it's really important that you don't just look at the output because if the output is 
limited say if you don't then also take a look at the organizational structure and be like oh well, there's like one person who works half time and paid for it and then there's like two volunteers right well then no surprises that they ha are having like their ripple isn't very big because they just don't have the capacity to do that does that mean that their program idea or the work that they're doing is insignificant no it just means that they haven't been funded appropriately and we see this a lot with nonprofits especially because so many funders you know, big and small will not provide infrastructure funding, like general funds operating expenses, which to your earlier example of the club that might be running, you know, a month long swim program in the summer, like, well, they need to pay coaches to be able to do that, right? Like volunteerism only goes so far and you can't be sure that you're going to be able to get volunteers every year. So you need to pay them, but donating to that program you might be thinking, well, I want to buy swimsuits or like entry into the pool or something like not thinking about the fact that you actually need a human to provide the coaching and the safety and all of those other pieces. Because like you said, salaries are not sexy in terms of charitable giving, but I think it's really important to look at that whole life cycle um, because we're so obsessed with outcomes and um, products and things, right? And that's not that outcomes aren't important, but you have to trace backwards to look at the organization's right. capacity. Um, that's right. That's and right. if they do not have the infrastructure and the capacity um, to really develop a program or a service at scale, then the scale of their impact is not going to be very big. But that doesn't mean that the impact isn't valid, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and and that's the thing. It's, you know, everyone's not going to be Susan Coleman or American Red Cross or, you know, some of the larger organizations and that, no shade on them because I've given to them as well, but not all of them are going to be that. And so given that, you know, we have to think about those smaller ripples that are, uh, that can be effective on a local scale that we don't give to, you know, like it still perplexes me. I've, I've worked with a, uh, a youth Try organization a few years ago. And, you know, they kind of puttered out a little bit um, when it came to funding. But yet when I look at the much larger branded foundations, I see them with tons of money and I still don't see the clear outcomes. So I'm like, okay, which one was more effective? Should I be giving to Ironman Foundation or should I be giving to Joe Schmo's Youth Sports, who every year had a great showing, who every year had, you know, access to uh, swim facilities, run trails, et cetera. But because it's not as flashy as Ironman Foundation, the funding puttered out. You know, that that to me, I'm just, uh, I'm still mm -hmm. kind of perplexed yeah. as, at the non-sexiness of many organizations that need it. So like, for example, Lisa, we've talked about this before. I'm not sure on the podcast, but Mackenzie Scott, Yes, we we know that, you know, the money that she pledged to give away, she's largely been giving away, you know, millions. And one of the things that I really appreciated about her approach, not that any approach is perfect, but one of the kind of criteria of her approach was that she would not give money to organizations that petitioned her. And I thought that was interesting because it's kind of like a, a lobbying situation. Like if you can afford to lobby me, then I would rather give money to the organizations that are too small and humble uh, to lobby me, right? And so therefore I would rather give it a different way. 
And so I think that was interesting to me. I keep kind of taking notes from McKenzie's approach, but I thought that was a really interesting twist on anything I'd ever heard about uh, nonprofits and donations because it was all about the squeakiest wheel got the most oil. And McKenzie is saying, nah, I don't believe that necessarily to be true. And I'm not going to manage my money in that way. So I, I think that was interesting about her approach. Um, maybe we should, you know, kind of consider that in our work too. But mm-hmm. what do you think about that approach? I think it's a great way because so many, like I would, I would bet that there are a number of people who listen to this podcast who are connected to nonprofit organizations, whether inside or outside of sport, but they're not thinking about the grant funding cycle, whether that's private funding or state and federal government funding, right? Like they either don't have the time to it to do that. They don't have the training, the um, subject matter, maybe a difficult subject matter to fund, right? And so, but that doesn't mean that the um, organization or the work doesn't have value. So Mackenzie Scott's approach is presumably there's some rubric by which she's identifying organizations because there are likely millions of them in the United States, right? In terms of doing work locally in their communities for change, but they, because they're so embedded in their community, they just don't have the time to outreach. They just don't have the time to write those grant applications. And as someone who has written state and federal grant applications and works under that financial structure, it is super, super restrictive. I mean, the number of reports, the data that you have to track, and I am a data person, but honestly, it's just ridiculous. And if you are like a two-person organization, the money might not be worth the administrative time that it costs to that's administer right. the grant, that's right? right. So right. in that sense, I think that's a really um, great way to do that. I also like the fact that she doesn't, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Shauna, but I believe that she doesn't put strings on the money, right? She doesn't say, I'm going to give you $500,000, but you need to that's do right. this with it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And that's what I love about her approach as well, too, is that usually the organizations that need the funding, it, it's already a process finding, quote unquote, grants and other funding that you're, quote unquote, qualified for. Right. Because, you know, that's half the battle. I hear people talk about that all the time where they're running a nonprofit or, you know, they would love to go after some of the grants, but the grants themselves are so restrictive. It's not just, you know, Lisa's Tri Club and we're giving to endurance sport. It's we're giving to Lisa's Tri Club in endurance sport that had to have started between 1980 and 1981 and everybody in the club has to have one brown eye and one blue eye like I I know I'm kidding and exaggerating there but it's not that much of an exaggeration when you start looking at the restrictions and the requirements of grants where they have very specific things around what makes you qualified for the funding and if you do get past that bar that's when we get into what Lisa was referring to around keeping the data, the reporting, how frequent is the reporting, the renewal itself. Like I've I've worked with some nonprofits that said it has been too much work this first year. We don't even want it to be renewed because we don't have the bandwidth to continue with the reporting and mandatory meetings. Sometimes there's mandatory meetings with state and government uh, grants that you receive. They just literally did not have the bandwidth for what's called the grants administration. It's one thing to write the grant and get it. It's another whole job with grants administration. And much of that grant, quote unquote, administration can't be written into the damn grant. 
So if we yeah, ask right. somebody for a million bucks, but we need a, a, even a part-time salary of 40K for someone to specifically administer the grant itself, we can't even write that in. So yeah, there, there's a lot that uh, is kind of the the backbone of this funding that makes it difficult. And McKinsey seems to be peeling away at that so that that doesn't need to be the case. Now, you can argue whether that sets McKinsey and or the nonprofit organization up for fraud. I mean, fraudulent people going to be everywhere. Let me just be clear on that. But from a donor perspective and those that are doing the work and doing it well, I love it. I, I absolutely love yeah. it. Yeah, the fraud thing, I think, is an easy um, reason that people offer as to why they're not going to provide kind of no strings attached donations. I mean, we're not talking like $50 donations here, right? We're talking the people who are able to provide thousands of dollars. But, you know, you look, this is your this is going to seem like I'm arguing against myself here, but I'm not. So the PPP loan process, right? Um, it was a very easy process to um, get um, a loan that was then, um, you know, not not required to be repaid after the fact it, during COVID. And there were little small businesses like myself all the way up to massive businesses that clearly do not, in my opinion, fit under the small business kind of umbrella. Some actually ended up giving their money back because they were shamed into it. But there was a significant amount of fraud because the process was so easy and the systems in the federal government are just so archaic because there's no funding for infrastructure because infrastructure is considered wasteful, but then you have these systems that cannot cope with the changing technology and the changing pace of needs. So, um, but the not, the amount of fraud that existed in that PPP loan um, program was very small comparative to the money that was given out to organizations that actually needed it and kept them afloat during the pandemic, right? So yes, fraud is a risk, but it's often like a tiny drop in the water. So the removal of like onerous applications, the removal of restrictions around how you spend the funding, I think can lead to some nervousness that your money is going to be utilized in an appropriate way like you said, there's always going to be fraud and you just do the best due diligence you can do on the organization to um, ensure that they have integrity and then they're, they're not going to misuse your funds. Right. But That's I don't, right. That's I don't right. think that that potentiality of fraud shouldn't prevent you from donating if you have the ability to donate. And right. then right. with, with small donations, right? Like the $50, the $10 a month or whatever, they're actually super important. And a lot of nonprofits rely on those, right? So the, the end of year income or that ongoing monthly donation can create a funding stream for nonprofits that is not restricted and enables them to be able to do ongoing programs to hire ongoing staff, right? So that's also something to consider if you're thinking about donating. Do you do it at the end of the year or do you choose an organization and pay them $10 a month, right? Because that's actually, that can be a lifeline for some. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you know, you're, you're right on it. And Lisa, I think, you know, with this, you know, we want to look at a few things with the organizations like 
Yeah, not saying that you need to look at a 500 page annual report, but do they have an annual report? You know, do they have some things where they're reporting out what they're doing? Um, Is that evidence there? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying due diligence, of course. But, you know, there's some organizations where they, you know, they have these very long, glossy <laughs> reports that really aren't showing us that anything was accomplished with the funds, even if your donation was five bucks, whatever the amount is, I'm not judging the amount. There don't see any outcomes to whatever uh, donation or funding uh, program cycle system the nonprofit has. So we're not saying don't be diligent, but what we are saying is that some of those uh, quiet wheels should get the the oil, if you will, that aren't getting it right now, including your endurance sport organization, including those youth sport groups, they need it. But there we go with the vicious cycle of they need the funding and the proof that they need the funding is that they can't lobby you for the funding because they're too busy running the damn program because they don't have the funding. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So that's where it's going. Yeah, yeah. So When it comes to this piece, I mean, I know we've talked about this quite a bit, but I think, you know, there are some resources out there that can help you to think about um, how you want to give. Lisa, you pulled up the the GiveWell website. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure um, if there are other, there probably are others out there like the GiveWell.org website. But in other words, I think, Lisa, folks should do their due diligence for sure. Yeah. you know, continue to be thoughtful about where they're spending their, their pennies here. And don't, don't assume size of an organization equals greater impact, right? Part of the um, philosophy around give well, and I will caveat this with, I haven't done a lot of digging into their methodology, but they are trying to identify organizations where your dollar goes furthest, right? And one one of the areas in which that is true, at least per their research, is um, mosquito nets in the prevention of malaria, right? Like there's, it's very low cost to provide a mosquito net and it saves hundreds of lives, right? So um, obviously that's not endurance sport related, but it's just something that's kind of how, that's kind of what they're about. But so this, but the size of the organization doesn't necessarily mean that they have a greater impact, right? And how are you understanding what impact means? Impact isn't the number of people that come to swim lessons, right? Impact is something bigger than that. It's has this organization equipped this group of people with the confidence that they feel safe in the water, Um, And then that that feeling of confidence and safety gets passed down, you know, generationally or into the community. I mean, some of that you can't know at this point in time, right? But it isn't just a numerical game. Um, That's part of what your due diligence can be is what is actually changing. Um, You know, like we've joked a little bit about kind of this like impulsive desire of people to buy kids who live in cities bikes. (laughs) And it's not that the provision of a bike isn't useful in some way, but it doesn't, is that impact giving a kid a bike who then can't ride it because there's nowhere safe to ride it? And how does the giving of a bike um, change kind of their circumstances, you know, if they are living below the poverty line, for example, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily increase their likelihood of participating in a bike race or a triathlon. They just now have a bike that they may or may not be able to use. So that's, so thinking about that, right. Um, when you're considering who you're going to be giving to, and then as the organization side of things, if you have time to market, 
make sure that you're you're really talking about that local community impact you know testimonials have people share the effects that your organization has had on their lives that's really important and meaningful i think um as people decide whether or not they're going to donate to your organization as the year ends mm-hmm. absolutely so all of this to say we're at this place in the calendar year that we're thinking about giving, whether it's individually giving or giving to organizations or soliciting donations from folks in order to make sure that our nonprofit organizations continue to run and run effectively. And so my hope is that folks have at least heard this podcast and started to think about where they want to give their money and also so if they're working with a nonprofit organization, how to make their work more transparent and tell the stories of people that are experiencing the change in order to attract people that have similar values. And from there, hopefully those coffers will fill, right? So Lisa, you think it's time to jump into our hell yeah and hell no nah really quickly? Yeah, I do. I do. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. All right. All right. So Oh, here we go. I, I know we, Lisa, how is it that we talk about football so much on this podcast, yet football is not in uh, the endurance sport world necessarily? No, no. And I do not. I'm no, I used to love it. Now I'm like over it. So, but anyway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I've been starting to keep up with football again, just because my little one, Kendrick, is uh, a flag football player. He loves football. He loves the sport. So I, I keep up with it with him. Um, but here's something that I thought was really interesting. Once again, my dad is always giving me the information. Um, so my dad is a Dallas Cowboys fan, for better or for worse. Y'all just leave that right there. That's another podcast for another day. Okay. And what's interesting is that um, daddy told me about this story about owner, Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones. And there has been a picture that's been brought back up of Jerry Jones at a 1957 protest. And the protest was blocking African-American children from entering the North Little Rock High School. And I think it's interesting because if you dig back into it, actually, Lisa, as, as I shared with you, I didn't even see the picture first. What I saw and heard first was you know, sports commentator, Stephen A. Smith, who was talking about Jerry Jones. He apparently is a a friend of Jerry Jones, knows him well, and he had a rationale for consideration of the picture, cancel culture, and a number of different things. And so I said, what in the world is he talking about? Let me go look at the actual picture that he's critiquing. And the picture, uh, you know, Jerry Jones was 14 years old at the time. And he's standing there doing nothing. They've got his face kind of circled with a red circle. And Jerry Jones is now 80 years old. And what I think is interesting, and again, I am not a Jerry Jones fan. I'm not a Cowboys fan. I am not a, you know, a biographer that's kept up with every move of Jerry Jones. But Stephen A. was critiquing the connection of a picture of Jerry Jones at a very pivotal civil rights historic moment at age 14, with the lack of diversity amongst uh, coaches, head coaches in the NFL, and making the connection between the two. Now, Lisa and I have already commented on the problematic lack of people of color as head coaches, specifically Black head coaches. We've already talked about that, so we're not going there. But what I am going to is 
this is interesting because this might not have happened in a world that did not have this level of social media and technology. And as we have it and as we apply it, I'm always scratching my head with the question of the arc of personal change. Again, not knowing what Jerry Jones has done right or wrong since he was 14 years old, now to the age of 80. But what I do know is that I don't want to stretch in such a way where we're making connections with people's past and people's present without being clear on everything in between. So it kind of reminds me of um, when people talk about uh, your life is not about the year you were born or the year you died, but the dash in between. I'm like, what the hell is going on with the dash here? Is there a arc of change? Is there an arc of social Mm -hmm, justice? mm -hmm. Is there an arc Mm -hmm. of acceptance? I don't know if that's the case with Jerry Jones, but I think this brings up a really great kind of case narrative of thinking about that dash of what in the world has yeah. gone on in someone's yeah. life, because I'm not quite sure this is a correct correlation, even from someone like me who is not necessarily a fan. I just don't, I don't see the relevance and maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see the relevance of the two. Both can be problematic on their own, but I don't see the relevance or the correlation between the two. I'm just not seeing it, Lisa. So that's my, uh, my hell no mm-hmm. for today. It might be a hell yeah or a hell maybe to some, but yeah, right. I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, it definitely raises some complicated issues, I think. And you and I chatted offline about some of them, but that is likely a longer conversation for a podcast on another day. So um, the hell yeah for today is also football focused. Um, And so um, I just learned, thanks to Shauna being my basically (laughs) informer of all the things that Dion Sanders, who we had talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast, might be coming to coach the University of Colorado Buffs football team. So he has been offered the position um, to come to Boulder, Colorado and take over that team to expand its public profile, its national profile and push it forward in the Pac-12, I think is where it is. And you can see that I do not follow college football at all. Also not a CU grad, but um I'm pretty excited about that, given what he has done um, on the college scene and his disruptor nature. I think that they um, they might be getting more than they are asking for by having Deion Sanders come because Boulder, Colorado, for those of you who don't know, is a pretty affluent white town. And um, I, you know, I hope that if he chooses to accept the job, his experience is good, but I also hope that he is able to push that school um, and that football team and the community to be a little bit more aware of how privilege is operating in that, in that space. Oh, yes. I I think that would be a huge awareness going from an HBCU to a affluent uh, university. And so, we're going to sit back and see. We're going to sit back and eat the popcorn and see what Dion does next, because we know he's a disruptor no matter where he is. We talked about that previously. So, um, yeah, Lisa, if he comes to Colorado, I might have to get a plane out to see you just to be able to oh afford a football ticket to see him actually coach. So eh, we'll see. We are so excited about TryHard's new active foot care kit. Lord knows my feet need plenty of TLC after what I put them through. Included in the kit is an active foot soak, active foot exfoliating soap, and active foot pre and post workout spray. The foot soak gently cleanses and dries out blisters while relieving pain, itch, and eliminating odors. 
The exfoliating soap, which includes a pumice stone, prevents calluses, eases pain, and prevents the formation of bacteria causing fungus. And last but not least, the pre and post workout spray prevents blisters and irritation. Just spray it on your feet before working out. Once you're finished working out, you can also use it to disinfect and deodorize your shoes and feet. It's self-care season, so go ahead and treat yourself to some try-hard products. Use the code STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off the active foot care kit or any other products at tryhard.co. That's STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off at tryhard.co. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>